Hey folks, happy Friday. I hope your holiday week has been lovely. I know that mine has been. Today, I'd like to give you a holiday treat, a bonus episode, a continuation of our chat with Mary Roach, author of the new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. The book itself is a collection of incredible stories about those who deal with and live with animals that cause a little havoc in our human spaces. That's Mary Roach's skill. She asks dozens of people dozens of questions about their field and the things they do within it, usually around a specific topic. I have always wanted to talk to Mary Roach about how she writes her books, about her style, about her interests, her focuses, and so naturally, when I got the chance to talk to her, we talked about a little bit more than just the scope of her book, Fuzz. So I wanted to share with you that entire conversation about Fuzz, about how she writes, about all the things that she does, and some things that I wanted Mary to know about, about Florida, about our nature, some things that you may have heard me talk a little bit about in the episode that came out on Monday, but let's hear Mary and I chat about birds and gators and bears. So this is that conversation, almost in full. I've edited out a little bit of me blabbering, but I've turned it into a really fun, really wonderful hour-long chat between me and one of my favorite living authors. So this is Mary Roach. A little content warning before we get started. Mary Roach's books go into weird and often, let's say, intimate places with both animals and humans. So in discussing her books, we have some conversations that may not be 100% appropriate for younger ears, some anatomical conversations, let's say. If this episode was a movie, it's a very mild PG-13. We don't get that gross in it, but it's not exactly the cleanest episode of the show, let's say. So that's just a warning up top before we dive in. If you are ready, let's talk to the one and only Mary Roach. My name is Mary Roach. I write nonfiction books, and the most recent one is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. How did you get into this kind of writing? How did this kind of writing kind of become your your niche? Uh, well, I wrote for general interest magazines for 15 years before I got my nerve up to even think about writing books. So, uh, and magazine feature writing back in the late 80s, early 90s was really fun. They had budgets. I did a lot of travel for that. I was like, this is the best job in the world. And then the internet came and magazines, there was this massive, mass extinction. <laughs> magazines and budgets shrank. And uh, around that time, an agent, who's still my agent, contacted me about a column that I was writing for Salon.com and said, you should think about books. And so I thought about books. And uh, out of that conversation came uh, Stiff, eventually, my first book. So, and I didn't go to journalism school, just, uh, you know, I had a useless liberal arts degree, <laughs> like so many of us, and I had no job skills, and I was like, well, I don't know, editing, copy editing, I wasn't very good at that, and so gradually just kind of shifted over, did some public affairs work, worked out at the San Francisco Zoo and um, as a public affairs person was not very good at that because I'm just not good at spinning stuff. I'm not, you know, clearly when somebody from the press would call, I was more on their side, you know, like at one point someone called and said they'd heard a rumor that a cheetah was sucked dry by ticks or something, <laughs> ticks or fleas. I don't know. And I was like, whoa, how much blood would that be? How many insects would it take 
to suck dry and you know my boss is like what are you doing just deny the rumor (laughs) (laughs) so not very well suited to a career in public relations but I mean, I think yeah. that strings. I think that strikes directly at something that is really interesting about your books is is and something that I've always loved and something I try to model is you you ask questions and do sort of math on stuff that don't that it just doesn't cross people's minds. It, it's the kind of stuff that people don't <laughs> think about or they don't take a second to ponder. They just accept things as fact. Why do you think you? Where do you think this sort of interest in digging deeper on strange questions like that comes from i don't know there may be something wrong with me i don't know i don't know i think my wiring is just funny maybe i'm not sure i I can't point to anything i mean my my dad was a kind of eccentric uh like he's the kind of guy we moved into a a little house in etna new hampshire and for some reason there was this random phone pole with nothing connected to it stuck in the ground by the garage. And he looks at it instead of thinking, let's take that out of there. He thinks we will carve a totem pole. <laughs> That's yeah. He, uh, my favorite animal is an elephant. Well, he was an artistically and he was an artist, but you know, my favorite animal is an elephant. So he paints a life-size elephant on the basement floor, which is, I knocked on the door of that house like 50 years later, not 50, 40. And I'm like, is there an elephant painted on the floor of your basement? They're like, yes, what is the story there? (laughs) So I don't know, maybe from him. I'm not sure. I think part of what they said at my liberal arts college was they said lots of stuff about, you know, part of getting a liberal arts degree is that you get to explore a lot of things. You get to, you know, get yes. learn, learn a little or a medium amount of a lot. So you get a broad scope of information from your college degree. And I yeah. think that's part of what is interesting about your books is that you come to a lot of them with artistic, scientific, historical, sociological, pop culture. How do you approach your stories from the variety of books obviously a lot of them are science-based but but where do where do these books start where where do they start for you how do you sort of cling to an idea that launches the book yeah i don't really start with a topic or an idea for a book i often start with one really appealing chunk of information or something in the world that i didn't know about and i think what would be the book that would go around that? Like the Packing for Mars, uh, the space one, mm-hmm. astronaut book, that kind of came out of uh, years ago, I reported a story about bone loss, yeah. which to me is a dull topic, kind of. And so I was trying to make it more interesting, and I called an astronaut, William, I forget his name. Anyway, he's an astronaut and, and an MD, and they – they are concerned with bone loss because when you float around for a long period of time, your bones kind of disintegrate. Right. And so they study bone loss. But in the conversation, the conver- uh, we strayed from bone loss, and he told me about this toilet, training toilet that the astronauts have to use to um, practice getting their alignment right because, you know, the toilets are completely different because there's no gravity. The water doesn't flow down and flush things away. And so in order to practice docking with the toilet there's this video toilet and of course i couldn't put that in the piece about bone loss because (laughs) it's kind of a stretch and the piece about bone loss was for vogue magazine so even more of a stretch but i had in the back of my head like someday i will i will see that toilet i will sit on that toilet one day so um 
I was reminded of that at some point and I went, oh yeah, what, what book could I build around that? So I started with the video toilet and I thought, okay, it is kind of interesting, all the weird simulations that have to be done for kind of practicing living in space, you know, before you actually get up there and all of the, just the weird challenges of life without gravity, life without flushing toilets, life without, um, air you know it's just <laughs> sure. a bizarre thing that what that we decided to do to put people up in this environment for which they didn't evolve and they have the wrong body and so right uh that's how that happened so i often just start with a piece and i think is this part of a book and what would that book be so how did you come to starting on fuzz uh <clears throat> Started on Fuzz because the, the piece there isn't even in the book, but the piece there was uh, this woman named Bonnie Yates who published a paper and also a wildlife law enforcement guide entitled How to Distinguish Real versus Fake Tiger Penis. Uh, and, <laughs> I can, and I can tell you how to do that should you ever want to you know, do a separate, whole separate show on how to detect or uh, counterfeit tiger penis. Anyway, that is a substance that is sold illegally as a medicinal, a traditional medicinal sure. treatment for, uh, I suppose, impotency, but may perhaps just virility. And, you know, the tiger's a very you know powerful animal, so eating the penis is supposed to imbue you with those qualities. Uh, but the tiger has a very, very small penis for its size. <laughs> so usually it's horse or cow oh that's crazy that's crazy yeah, i know it's usually horse cow or deer that's used instead and then they carve little barbs to make it look like a feline penis um and anyway so that was interesting and this woman who wrote the paper also set up a hair library like a library of animal hair which is really complicated because animals have guard hair body you know regular coat hair under coat hair whiskers etc so she's you know ca calling zoos all over going yeah okay i need one each of the hairs on these six species you know she's so she had put together you know so this is something so they could identify uh contraband that's that's um, confiscated and they can say is, is this or is it not an endangered species and is this person breaking the law so i went up to see her thinking i don't know this could be there could be a, a book around this. I don't know what the book is. Turned out there isn't a book around it because <laughs> uh, if it's an open case, I can't tag. I wouldn't be able to tag along with any investigator on any investigation. And for wow. me, that ruins it. <clears throat> I have to be able to be on the scene, reporting, seeing things, talking sure. to people. I don't want to do the kind of book that looks at a closed case from ten years ago, although plenty of people do that you can do that it just isn't right for me but that but then i kind of turned it around and like what about the and the wildlife as the perpetrators rather than the victims so that's kind of what happened um with a few false starts along the way uh, i also kind of thought oh maybe agricultural crime i could throw that in the mix but that's all done by sheriff's offices and sheriff's offices don't want reporters sure, sure. <laughs> hanging around they just were like they just didn't kind of respond the way they weren't like come up here you can ride along with us you can come along on stings with us you can they were not they're like who what why <laughs> sure and i don't think so
So uh, I just and, and then I had the idea to do it crime by crime, you know, putting quotation marks around crime. Obviously, animals are not breaking the law and acting as criminals because they're animals. They're following their instincts. But I still thought, you, you know, you could just break it down by murder, manslaughter, home invasion, trespassing, vandalism. You know, they do all of that in their day to day lives. But um, so that that's how very roundabout way that I arrived at the topic. Well, I think that part of I have two things to say. One of them, and you know, this is probably a question is, I think, I don't know if you think of your book this way, but I think just think the book I've read the most of yours, I've literally read it three times is spook. I love ghost stories. I love the paranormal. I love the scientific element of that. So I've read that book many times, big fan of it, but that book starts, if I'm remembering correctly, it starts with, um, uh, being reborn reincarnation and yep. this book starts with the bears. And I think that both of those, as strange as this is about to sound, I think both of those are the most sort of approachable way to start this topic. I think that if you're starting with ghosts, people are like, whoa, science of ghosts, that's really high-minded. But if you're starting with kids yep. are saying stuff about past lives, that right. is a tangible thing that we can research and look at and go, huh, we don't really know. But right. also the same thing with bears is... People know, I guess it didn't start with the bears. It started with, it's, oh my goodness. No, it does. Well, it starts with the um, cougar and bear attacks. Correct. Like that's a, that's what I meant. Sorry, but it it starts with thing. You start with that and then you go into the bears rummaging in garbage. But like those things are so, anybody knows that. I live in Florida. I've seen bears rummaging through garbage, black bears. Like that is just such a common thing across the country, across the world. How do you decide on the thing that is the most sort of, do you intentionally start with the thing that is most accessible and then sort of build out from there? Or does that just come naturally in the story? Um, That's a great question. I tend to, uh, my, partly because my editor is very, be very focused on what, how does the book open? And right. is it going to make people want to keep reading? Is it going to make people standing in a bookstore go, huh, I'm, this interests me. I want to keep going with this book. So she's very focused on that. And I know that she is. So that's made me very aware of opening the book in a way that will be interesting to people. Like I, uh, gulp. I remember because gulp starts it's the alimentary canal. It starts at the mouth and it goes to the ass. Right. It's that weird tube down the, <laughs> we're, like, we're like a donut, you know, there's this weird tube where there's different rules. It's full of bacteria. So it's just like, it was like profiling the weird stops along the alimentary canal. But because of that, I had started with a chapter that had to do with taste and, and, and actually well, it had to do with pet food <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as the framework for it. And she's like, Mary, we are not starting with pet food. <laughs> I'm like, Jill, I'm like, Jill, I, I can't, she goes, can't you just take this chapter eight? I'm like, I'm starting in the mouth and the, the head and I'm going to the ass. I can't just rip the ass out from chapter eight and stick it at the beginning. She's like, well, you can't start with pet food. So I had to run out. I had to find quickly another, uh, it ended up being, smell and taste and i i was able to find something and lead with that and she was right i mean it's much more it's it's much more relatable i mean i do like the the pet food chapter it's really bizarre but uh the opening of the book is it's much more it's much it's of interest to more you know like the bears or like reincarnation and stuff 
something that people can connect with a little bit. So that is certainly, I think, what most authors, or if they're not aware of that, they might want to be. Yeah, yeah, that's something <laughs> the, the I'm working on. Is important. That's something yeah. I'm working on as well with this conservation season. Is I have two episodes that could be the first episode, and I'm really juggling starting with a like heavy historical episode about sort of this man who is named Frank Chapman. He's like the father of modern ornithology. He created the Christmas bird count, but he essentially was like integral in the extinction of a rare bird that was seen in Florida. And the last one in the wild was hunted in Okeechobee, but he's like this figure, like every ornithologist knows this man, loves this man, respects him. But like, in his day and age, Michelle Nyhouse talks about this in her book, in his day and age, like hunting birds was part of conservation. You would yes. kill them so you could study them. But of course, the yes. numbers were dwindling. And so that's kind of a bleak way to start the yeah. season. So I'm like, maybe that isn't the first episode. <laughs> maybe we'll work up to that one at some point. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And with Grunt, with Grunt, uh, initially I led with the um, penis transplant chapter. Yeah, I thought that is amazing. And plus, I was invited to to a wet run, as they call it, where they were doing a using two cadavers doing a penis transplant. I'm like, that's the opening chapter. And my editor was concerned that that is a little too much for people that we would need. We would need to ease them into the cadaver penis transplant. I still don't know if that was. You still regret it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, she felt like that's just too much for people. You need to ease them into that. But I don't know. I, I, uh, but, but yes, I mean, that's all to say that you gotta, yeah, you think a lot about it. I think that the story of this guy sounds amazing. And the fact that he shot the last bird. I know it's it's That's it's a crazy. Great story. I actually don't know if he shot the last bird, but he was shooting like within years, so the population yeah. was just falling and falling and falling. He he knew that yeah. it was a bad thing to do at that point right. because he knew the numbers were bad, and he like chose to do it anyway because he was more interested in the science of it. It's just very, especially when he right. created the Christmas. Not to get into, not to go way off yeah, topic, yeah. but he got into the Christmas bird count because he wanted to stop a tradition because there used to be a thing called the Christmas bird hunt and hunters would go out and bag as many birds as they could on, on around the Christmas season. And they would eat some of them and they would put, they would sell them to milliners and it was like part of the, the tradition. But he, I know. I had no idea why it was because I've done the Christmas bird count. It's wonderful. And it's actually the reason I wrote about it is because I got to meet the woman whose job it is to watch bald eagles in Florida because we have the second or third densest population of bald eagles Mm. in the country. And not a lot of people know that because it's like Alaska, Minnesota, Florida. Like we just have that. I had no idea. Me neither. And so I spoke to the woman who runs this program called Eagle Watch where all she does with volunteers is watch out for eagles, watch out for eagles nests. A little bit of what you talk about in the book of how you track those numbers of how you go, okay, it passed by, passed by again. And so that's, that's kind of their job. And then they have local people who literally... On their retirees, people who have off days, they go out, they sit near eagles' nests at a safe distance so the eagles don't aren't bothered by them, and just keep an eye on them. That's what they do. You know, the Christmas bird count uh, uh, is something that's done by volunteers, right? And you may wonder when somebody who doesn't know anything about birds and bird watching signs up as a volunteer, what do they do with that person? And I'm here to tell you because that was me about 
30 years ago, I volunteered, and this was before I had really started bird watching much. And they put me on um, a park in Chinatown in San Francisco, which is basically pigeons and some <laughs> house sparrows. Yeah, and they come. That, that's all they do. Pigeons just sit there, and you go, one, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. So that's what they do with the volunteers. Yeah, that's how, I have Don't a feeling that's anything. a big... I have a feeling that's what they do with me too. I, 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 for a person who loves birds, I've never done like an official like bird watch, a bird like anything sort of scientific. I just go, hey, that's a great blue heron. That's that's all yeah, I yeah, do. Yeah. My coworkers. Oh my god, are, you guys have the best birds. We do. Hatchie. We my, have the my best birds. Live, my in-laws live right near Wakota Hatchie. Oh wow. Oh my god, there are so many whistling ducks and wood ducks yeah. and wood storks and all like five different herons and egrets and it's just and i mean back my backyard right now i really don't want to sound like i'm bragging but i backyard right before i came up to to set up the microphone there are i mean probably 15 sandhill cranes with <gasps> egrets a great blue heron i mean there are birds galore i thought, I thought you were gonna say roseate spoonbills i have seen a couple sis- wild roseate spoonbills that yeah, is my, my favorite sister-in-law, bird that, my, me too my sister-in-law lives on a little i think i don't know man-made probably lake and in um, Fort Worth, not Fort Worth, Lake Worth, Florida. And oh, I love Lake she'll Worth. Send, yeah, she'll send pictures of a roseate spoonbill and go, look who's in my backyard today just to get me. Because I'm like, ah, God. Because <laughs> for like, yeah, for like 15 years, I'd go down there and, and never see, I, fi- I finally did see one because my husband goes, is that a flamingo out there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pink birds, you know. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sorry to get back on topic. Um, so the the stories in this book are so varied in terms of where they are, especially and and also in topic. Where did you start? Like, where where was the first book, first story in the book? When 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 does that make sense? When which yeah, which story well, in the book was the first one you sort of collected? Right. Yeah. It's it's rarely the first story that appears in the book. The first place I went for this was the jaywalking ungulates. Wow. It was the deer, <clears throat> the deer in the headlights chapter uh, was the first that I reported. I went out to uh, Ohio, Sandusky, Ohio, where uh, this guy, Travis DeVault, was doing research into uh, why, why animals, particularly deer, at night just stand there and look at the headlights as they come closer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was the first, uh, the first chapter I reported. So, so, you know, it, it has everything to do with who's doing something interesting that I can go visit. Like, who's, and if something is happening, I, yeah, I'll go. So, some stuff I have to wait a year and a half before uh, I can go because it's not happening till then. You know, my schedule is completely determined by um, which researcher is doing what, when. Well, to pivot a little bit to the researchers, I mean, it, it's such a, you find in books about animals that the people who deal with them are such wonderful characters. And this book is just filled with just such interesting people from around the world. How did you come to be working with a lot of these people? I mean, you had a crew of people in India that you were working with over the course of several chapters. You had people all over the West coast. I mean, how, how did you come to find some of these researchers? Oh, just poking around. You know, I knew that, uh, I, I knew that India was of interest because, um, they have it. Well, I don't even know if I knew that at the time. It might just have been 
let me plug into Google Institute and Wildlife and India. You know, cause yeah. sometimes, I, I mean, I, uh, I'll i just poke around that way. I may have done that for Africa because I considered some places in Africa as well. Um, India turned out to be really interesting because of the because of Hinduism and the role of animals. Right. It may, you know, people are very sort of reverent and respectful of animals and it's very a very vexing problem for people trying to deal with conflict animals, problem animals. But uh, I think probably just stumbled onto the Wildlife Institute of India, started reading about all the different projects that were going on and then just emailed this one guy. Well, I probably emailed five or six people there. He happened to be the one who wrote back to me. And uh, over the course of several weeks or months of correspondence, we zeroed in on, you know, what I was going to report on. And, you know, because he does go out on the road <clears throat> visiting these villages and hamlets in, in leopard and elephant area uh, kind of areas where they have problems. So... Uh, I'm trying to think how New Zealand came about because I was doing a talk in New Zealand anyway. So I was poking around. Then I came across Predator Free 2050 and that whole plan. And I spoke, I just, you know, uh, reached out to somebody there. I asked the person I knew in New Zealand if he knew he happened to know some other people involved in that work. So he put me in touch with, uh, with a couple people down there who, um, just, just you know, uh, uh, bouncing around from contacts I was given, and then looking stuff up on the internet, and, and you know, ending up pinpointing the person whose work was an angle that would be kind of different, a different. Because I didn't want to just write a general piece about Predator Free Twenty Fifty. Sure. I wanted to focus on a particular aspect of it. So uh, that's kind of how it goes. And you know, the Vatican was, you know, uh, I, I've never been to the to Vatican. <laughs> The Vatican City State, and I just loved the juxtaposition of uh, pest control, basically, and the Pope. <laughs> so, um, and that meant, and so that was just uh, emailing this guy who had invented this laser scarecrow, and he was very like, "How do I know Crazy. who you are?" He was very um, reluctant initially. I don't know who you are. Can you give me your editor's name? Can I, you know, he had, which sure. I've never experience before somebody asking to verify my credentials just not believing i don't know what he thought why i would why somebody would make that up but yeah anyway it took a while to kind of reassure him uh so yeah it's just your basic reporting yeah kind of so I mean, to talk around, a little bit about sure yep. finding the right person. Uh, yep. To talk a little bit about Predator Twenty Fifty. I mean that that chapter really stands out to me because of how similar it is to some problems we have in Florida. Can, for for people who are interested in reading the book, can can you give like a summary of what that situation was, like what's happening there in New Zealand? Sure, New Zealand has has a, a profound problem with invasive species, a, a problem of their own making. If you go back to I'm, I think it was the early 1800s I'd have to check the book the dates but but New Zealand when when, when um, Europeans came to settle in New Zealand they had these acclimatization societies and, and what that did is uh, introduced some animals from the homeland that they missed and they wanted to kind of try to make their new surroundings feel more like home and that sometimes included bringing in animals one of the animals they brought in 
was rabbits. And there are no land predators at that time in New Zealand. That's why the birds were flightless. They had no reason to fly away because there were no predators. So now they brought the rabbits in. Okay, fine. The rabbits were not killing the birds, but the rabbits multiplied like crazy because nothing was killing them or feeding on them. And then the people decided, well, let's bring in something to kill the rabbits. So they brought stoats over. They imported stoats, which are very effective predators. And the stoats uh, may have killed some rabbits, but they certainly killed a lot of birds. They the chicks. They ate the eggs. So they kind of created this problem with stoats, also rats, also feral cats. And possums were brought in for the fur trade. And the possums uh, also have affected these, these species. So the natural biodiversity of New Zealand is tanking because of uh, also rats. Did I say rats? Anyway, yes. uh, rats, possums, and stoats, they're going to attempt to completely eliminate them from New Zealand, which is a huge undertaking. And also, you know, uh, not a pleasant one for the rats, stoats, and possums. Sure. <laughs> so it's a tough problem. On the one hand, you understand why people want to preserve their native biodiversity and, and not see this tremendous number of birds and reptiles go extinct. On the other hand, uh, <clears throat> mass poisonings uh, are kind of hard to swallow. Um, so it's an interesting conundrum. And I spoke to someone who his role is trying to uh, create uh, more humane methods of killing these animals, which if you know, if you're going to do that as a nation as a society if you make that decision you know it behooves you to do it in a humane way so he tests traps and poisons uh and he uh he and his staff and that's a really uh brutal job um but you know important to do that but not pleasant so i was interested in that uh that the role that he plays in that work I think that one of the sort of recurring themes of the of the book, the sort of thing that keeps coming back to, and you mentioned this a little bit when you talked about, even say it a little bit when you're talking about the penguins, the yellow-eyed penguins, is you describe them and then you go, you go, not to say that because he's beautiful, he should be more protected. I believe you say, but I mean, damn, or something like that, which <laughs> just, just absolutely that. destroyed me. That was so funny. But it's so true. I mean, like how, one of the things that keeps coming up though is that, we there are there's like a price to the impact that we have had generations ago we've had an impact on our culture or even within this generation we've had impacts on our ecosystem and we have to like make we have to like make sacrifices to attempt to keep it around what 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 sort of feeling were you getting from people uh, the 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 experts working in this field when they have to do that sort of thing. What, what was the sort of overall consensus you're getting from around the people in this field? Well, I really spent time with Bruce. I didn't really, I didn't interview a lot of people, but there's a, there is a quite a powerful consensus as far as I can tell in New Zealand that this is the right thing to do. There's a real, um, it's almost like an anti-stoat propaganda campaign. Like you go <laughs> in a national park gift shop and there'll be squashed possum chocolates, like ha 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 you know, humorous item. There's lots of, you know, taxidermied stoats posed in with, you know, their claws on a bird looking really fierce. There's definitely uh, an effort to portray these animals as villains and, you know, to a kind of an extent that I've never 
really seen and and ch- even children's books with like this grinch like character and like the little birds going we're doomed there's no way we can fight him <laughs> you know just like so and and I'm, and i asked bruce about that bruce warburton the person i i spent time with and he said well part of it is you know because I, I said new zealand is a very environmentally oriented eco-conscious country i'm kind of surprised that there is this unanimous se- seemingly unanimous support for predator free 2050 and he said well part of it is that the you know they drop aerial drops of 1080 poison and he said part of it is that it's it's done out of sight you know he said if it was done out on this pasture land and he sort of gestured out the car window if it was done here in the middle of the day we would get more pushback ironically the pushback that they do get is from hunters because one of the animals again brought in imported one of the animals that are affected by these um poisoning campaigns are deer the deer that were brought in sure so they complain you know as bruce said they complain about it and then they go and stick arrows in them and he said i can say that because i'm a hunter yeah but um yeah it's 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 interesting the, the like people have kind of the, the population is sort of engaged and it, and is part of it in, in in doing backyard trapping and they have this newsletter i used to, i got the newsletter for a while and oh it's signed the sign off is happy trapping like i don't know how happy i could be about that but again you're talking about losing a tremendous number of these kind of amazing looking birds and reptiles and you know who wants to live in a nation that only has stoats rats possums and feral cats right and i mean a little bit about that's a little bit of the the question with some of the the West coast stories as well with the cougar attacks, the bear attacks, the bears breaking into the bears getting into garbage and stuff. I mean, that's something that's so we, we don't, you know, it's a little bit different here in Florida. The animals that people are concerned about being attacked by are bears and alligators, but we don't, we don't really have a lot of, frankly, I've been very, very close to gators in my life and never been threatened by them. They're, Oh my, you know what? I know. I took a class in alligator wrestling. They're, just... they're not, you know, and they do, they'll bluff charge you. I mean, I did for this class, one of the things that the guy did after my little, you know, kind of, basically I was wrestling three-month-old alligators. <laughs> but then he said, okay, because he had tour, and this was weirdly in Colorado at a hot spring where they, and they raised tilapia, but he had a few alligators. And so he did this tourist thing. And one of the, he had me as like the tourist bait. And I was, he had me wade out into the lake where there's like 20 full grown alligators. And I had to um, lasso with a pole and a rope, uh, a female and sort of drag her from one point to another. And so the tourists were like, oh my God, she's going to get eaten. And he had convinced me that, and in fact, they did seem to be either uninterested or uh, avoiding me. He is like, you know what? You're, we're not on the menu. They don't care. They're not gonna. But then, you know, I looked up alligator uh, alligator fatal attacks, and there are, and I don't know if they're all accurate, but when you look up on Wikipedia for the list of fatal alligator attacks, there's quite a few. And I thought, God, was I actually really stupid to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I just um, think there's something interesting to to, especially in that cougar and and because we also have panthers here in Florida, but the panther cougar bear situation of we know that we want to keep human beings safe, but also right. these animals are valuable. They're our ecosystem. And you, there yes. was a lot of pain in a lot of the people you were talking to and they have to 
kill an yes. animal that has killed a person. What, yeah. what is the, what is the feeling you get from them? What is the, what, what was the sort of consensus you get from wildlife experts? And I don't just mean in the, in that part of the country, you were also dealing with people who are talking about dealing with the macaques and the other and the elephants right. in India. Right. What, what, what is the sort of universal human anxiety about the balance between humans and animals. I know that's what the book is about, but like, what, what is that sort of thing that you well, keep getting from no, people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no universal consensus. It's very different culture by culture. I mean, I say that having, well, I'm just talking about India versus the US and there really isn't a consensus. And even in the United States, there's two very, very different opinions. And it ranges on the extremes from, you know, never under any circumstances should you kill a bear or a cougar that's harmed a person to this animal's on my property. I'm going to shoot it in the head. <laughs> so there's, there is not a consensus that it is a very uh, broad cultural divide. Um, the people who deal with this professionally are affected by that in that, you know, they're char- people who work for wildlife management agencies uh, are charged with, uh, protecting animals, but more than that, uh, keeping the public safe. So when they do come in and, you know, if there's a bear that's becoming aggressive and breaking into houses, sometimes even when people are home, that bear is considered a, a threat to public safety and they'll set a trap and the animal will be destroyed. And they, these are by and large, uh, like people who studied wildlife biology who got into this job because they love the outdoors and they love working with animals, I'm saying by and large. Obviously, I'm 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 generalizing here, sure. but so so, and it's it's a very hard thing to do for them to have to put down one of these animals, and then on top of that, they get death threats from um, animal rights people, and it's a really really hard job emotionally. It seems to me. Did you get a lot of? sort of commentary from people working like about how difficult it is for them like did they say a lot about how it's like taxing on them yes yeah yeah um you know i again i didn't i didn't do a poll or anything but uh (laughs) there's like yeah i spoke to three people who talked about that in some detail about what it's like and just talked about you know they were speaking sort of generally about their colleagues I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it's, it's really hard to generalize about a whole occupation. There could be people who got into that job because they love shooting animals. I have no idea, but the people that I spoke to, um, were mostly, uh, had a background in wildlife biology and that was the worst, absolute worst part of their job. I talked to one person, uh, in Colorado, this person who I uh, spent a day with on the job and he talked about how he'd had to put down, destroy, that is, uh, a female bear and her cub because they were both breaking into homes repeatedly. And he said, I had to think about how I had to give some thought on how to do that. I didn't want the mother to see th- this done to the cub and vice versa. So I tranquilized one and then killed the other and then went back. And he's like, and just to hear him describe this, like the mood in the truck had become really heavy and dark, you know, it was just, it's just just an awful part of the job. And, and, and it's frustrating for them because the reason this is happening is because people don't bother to 
get a bear resistant container, keep it locked, keep their, I mean, that the bears are being attracted by the mistakes of humans. And so the, uh, it's, it's our fault when it happens. So they, uh, it, it, I think that there are people who probably come to like bears better than people. I, nobody said that. I'm saying that. Yeah. To switch a little bit to Florida, I mean. Oh, I have a Florida. Please tell me. Okay. Uh, I talk about um, in the Everglades, and I, f- I forget exactly which, there's a boat launch in, uh, ever, in the Everglades where there's been a problem with, with vultures coming in out and defiling parked cars they like to pull on the pull the rubber off windshield wipers and pull the seal from the sunroofs off and so they vandalize parked cars and there's been interesting research done out of the florida branch of the national wildlife research center they were trying to figure out why this happens and also figure out how to dissuade the vultures yeah and one of the things that they tried is something weird that's that does work it's a, a, an effigy it's it's a and you can do effigies with other birds but the vulture effigy is one that seems to work really well which is <laughs> you take a dead vulture or something that approximates it and hang it upside down with its wings out okay oh, and that <laughs> apparently freaks the vultures out who knows why? I mean, we can anthropomorphize and say that they're like, get the hell out of here. Somebody's hanging. Someone's them. mutilating our guys. So, there's some weird cult here. <laughs> get out of here. Who knows why it works? You, you, uh, But anyway, it, do, it does work. So this, uh, and I wish I could tell you which little parking lot in the Everglades. It's in the book. I, yes, it's in I will Fuzz. include it. But, but they, so they 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 hung effigies from the trees and it kept the vultures away but the park rangers then had to spend all day reassuring freaked out visitors who were like who were like somebody hung a bird by its feet in the parking lot what is going on so they like finally they took away the effigies and they just put a box of tarps and it says cover your car with a tarp yeah vultures will rip apart your windshield wipers so anyway, that was that's that's my Florida connection there. I I did, I I uh, spent a fair amount of time talking to a couple people down there at the Florida branch of the NWRC. I just want to tell you about the Everglades because, or just about Florida in general, because you know it's so funny to be reading the you're reading your book and seeing things happening in other states and seeing how similar they are to things in Florida, but there's a weird little Florida twist on all of them. Like when you're talking about us, when you're talking about the pests in New Zealand, we have major pest problems in the state of Florida. And I mean like state state and County governments have like devoted themselves to solving this problem. The Burmese pythons are so seriously a problem in the state, uh, in the Everglades specifically. And we don't know how they got there. We literally genuinely do not know for sure where the pythons came from. There are state paid hunters who are on literal Florida government payroll, whose job it is to go into the Everglades, hunt down Burmese pythons. They get a bounty bounty for every python they bring in. It is incredible. And the pythons, I assume, are eating bird eggs. Correct. uh, Rendering species extinct. Correct. Similar. But even more importantly, they're eating... I wish I'd I'd done a chapter in Florida. My my sister-in-law... Uh, in Lake Worth, who lives on a little lake, not probably Lake Worth, but a little man-made lake. She said people in her housing development 
just killed a bunch of iguana. She, they'd be out on her lawn. We'd look out her window, and there'd be an iguana. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I suppose same thing. They're they're eating bird eggs. Yeah, it's it's true. They're, reptiles. It's true. They're eating bird eggs. They're eating some of our smaller lizards as well. They're they're bothering some of our living birds. And then my favorite thing, I actually wrote about this for my Christmas episode. <laughs> I did a holiday episode last year where I just got I ta- I called a bunch of my experts and I said, "Do you have a winter slash holiday slash Christmas slash anything story that we could include?" And I had a lovely friend who is a herpetologist down at the zoo my at Zoo Miami who is like, "Yeah, uh, iguanas get so." cold in Miami that they uh, freeze and fall out of trees and I was like oh god that's the best that is the best Merry Christmas everyone Happy Hanukkah thanks so much for coming that's hilarious do they 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 drop dead or do they they don't drop dead they thaw thaw out (laughs) unless they fall from I said how many times have you seen one like fall and die he's like they don't because they have thick enough skin that they hit the ground they'll they'll basically uncool and then they will go back because the ground is warm so they'll go back to skittering around but if they're in a tree oh man it's wild but we also have this problem in central Florida that I'm, I'm trying to figure out the way to write about is we have a lot of chickens in Central Florida, and we have a lot of peacocks in Tampa, in Oviedo, which is a town near me. We have a lot of uh, – there's peacocks not far from my house. Feral chickens? Feral chickens, feral peacocks. Wow. Yeah. And those peacocks are loud. Pe- oh, so I went to Rollins College, which is a small liberal arts school in, in Orlando, and the town it's in is called Winter Park, and Winter Park is had sp- – feral peacocks for so long that it is like the town seal is of a peacock and when i it's crazy and when i would go to sleep on campus i would wake up to the sounds of just like ah, ah, from across the yeah, lake yeah. of peacocks they are yeah, screamers. so loud yeah yeah and also uh limpkins which are this beautiful big wading bird the, my sister-in-law again limpkins oh that sounds so familiar wake. They, they've got a really loud call and they call them and they do it in the middle of the night I think either they're super early in the morning which drives people crazy so the limpkins come and you see them for a while and they bet mysteriously disappear like somebody was like <laughs> god damn it I am not going to be woken up another night by that bastard I have a just to keep talking about loud birds we're, where we've lived is where we've moved is very near a lake a pretty large lake here in Seminole County called Lake Jessup very beautiful lake and we have a ton of birds we have a farmland right here on the on the lake jessup so you'll see cows out in the swamp on the edge of the lake it's so cool and so beautiful but there's this uh, last october I, I i love horror movies and i was watching a movie in the middle of the night last october and was just sitting in my room and all of a sudden i hear just like this and it's like two in the morning and i'm like what is that what is that and then it would do it again and it would do it again and i'm like i know that's not a nightingale I know that that's not an owl. I don't know what this bird is. And it turns out it's a, a loon. Was it, it, a loon? it was not a loon. No. It turns out it's a, it's a, a kill deer, which is just the oh, kill deer, yes. craziest name of a uh-huh. bird. And they just whistled yeah. around my house. They do this thing where they act like they've got a dead wing. Like they act like they've been attacked yeah. to like, I, lure. I know. I've seen that. It's yeah. crazy. To, yep. They're so to lure the predator away from their nest. I know. I've seen that. We have kill deer out on the coast here. Do you really? Uh, I, yeah, we have killed killed deer all over the place. Wow! And they do. You see them do that thing with the broken, fake broken wing. 
crazy. They're pretty slick. I bet I did not know that they whistle at night. That's I, annoying. I feel like it was a, I, I, it must, because I found very rare references of them whistling at night in all the research I did. Because it wasn't even research I was doing for an episode. It was me going, why does this little jerk <laughs> bother exactly. me at 2 a.m. every he's single de- night? He's deranged. It's true. He's a deranged killdeer. It's true, but he hasn't come back this fall, so uh, maybe yes, I won't see him again. Somebody took care of him. Somebody took him out. I guess so. <laughs> it's a very pretty, it's a very pretty little bird it is but i mean yeah. it, it it all of this reminds me you know i always think that f- people there's a stereotype of florida well there's many stereotypes of florida <laughs> but there's a stereotype of florida that we are that we're kind of the australia of the united states that we have such a a closeness to our nature a, 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 an intimacy with wild animals you know snakes we see snakes yeah. all over i saw a diamondback just in a neighborhood a couple weeks ago or last year you know we just see random animals so close but i think it was it was nice for me to read the book and go i'm glad everyone else is dealing with this too (laughs) i'm glad this is yeah yeah it's true and also you you guys to to mitigate the pain of the nuisances just have an amazing diversity of like tropical semi-tropical birds and and animals and even insects i follow this guy on twitter who takes photographs of just the craziest looking insects. And I wrote to him on Twitter and I said, where do you find these creatures? He, how do you do what you do? And his, his reply was one word, Florida. Yeah, that's about right. That's incredible. About right. Just incredible what you see. I love those walkways through the mangrove swamps that they have in the uh, Okefenokee. What is it? Okefenokee, Oke- yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that, the big cypress, the cypress knees, and the. Yeah. I remember seeing a barred owl just the middle of the day, this owl kind of just staring at us from 10 feet away. Amazing. What goes on? It's yeah. nice. It's always nice to hear uh, non-Floridians come to us and 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 fall in love with it because <laughs> we love it. I I don't know many Floridians who don't love the, our nature, love our ecosystem. I mean, it's so. I feel like it's very personal for for Floridians. I know it's probably personal for a lot of people, but I can't speak to other states or other countries. Yeah. But Florida, it's very personal for people and. People develop lore around bugs. We have full folklore about the love bug, which is just a random fly that appears twice a year. Wow, cool. We, we have like crazy, I'll, not to be self-promoting, but I, if, I, I'll send you an episode about the love bugs because we have fictionalized their existence because they're these weird little bugs. They mate, and when they mate, they're, they stick their butts together, and then they stay together until the day they die, and they only live about 10 days. <laughs> And so they fly around as little paired bugs. Like you just see them. They have a little hinge. Like they can kind of, the back one can kind of tilt back. But (gasps) they were created. They weren't created. They are nature evolution flies. But there was a theory, and this is completely not true. But there was a, a folklore for years and years and years that the University of Florida created these bugs as pests or as, as predators for mosquitoes. These bugs uh-huh. do not eat mosquitoes. These bugs yeah. were not created by the University of Florida, but because they're weird, they got sort of Frankenstein. Like people sort of thought that they have this Frankenstein story. And I put out an episode about it in probably summer of 2019. And I had friends from elementary school message me and go, that's not real. And I was like, no, it's not real. The University of Florida didn't invent a bug. Are you, you, you really thought that was real? And they're like, yeah, we, we thought, oh my God. and I'm like, 
They I, invented a bug. They thought Can they you invented imagine? that would be huge. News. Right, right, <laughs> that would be huge. Oh my god! But I had friends from across the state. I had friends who lived in Tampa, Panama City Beach, Miami, Daytona. I live in Orlando. We, I have friends from around the state who I did not meet until I was in college or after, who said to me, "I was told as a child that the love bugs were created by the University of Florida." And I'm like, how did we all, where did we all learn this? Where did this come from? I still don't know. I still yeah. have no idea how that myth got propagated, but it, it's, we have such well, a. Yeah, and, and more chilling than the fact that people thought it was propagated, that the people believed that it's possible yeah. to create out of nothing a new bug. I think it was I just mean, kids, you know what I mean? Maybe they meant that they, they thought they genetically modified an existing maybe. bug, maybe. I don't know. I will wow. say, I will say, it was never, it was never adults. It was all people my age. It was all twenty something. Yeah. So it was all something that it must have something that happened that got spread in the nineties or the early two thousands yeah. that we all just accepted as fact. I don't know why <laughs> we just did. <laughs> I just find it so wow. bizarre. Yeah, but that's cool. That the story is amazing. My cousin, I have a cousin who just told me this story. I and I believe he read it in a legitimate book but hopefully i'm not starting one of those rumors right now <laughs> but he told me this thing about hermit crabs that that when they because they they go into one shell and then they outgrow the shell they find a shell that they you know they themselves don't have their own shell and so at some point they do this thing where they lie a bunch of hermit crabs of different ages line up in order of size and then they all swap out to the next Whoa. size up oh god i hope that's real God, I, hope that's real. I mean, he—he—he's not the kind of person, you know. He's—he's he's pretty intellectual, erudite. He's, he's British. Let's just say he's British. <laughs> so it's nature's he, uh, nature's hand-me-downs. That's incredible. Yeah, but of course, I'm thinking, what about the last guy? Yeah. In the line. That's, Where does he go? That's right. That's completely right. Is he has to go around naked, he's homeless, like, until he finds a conch shell that 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 has a guy yeah, inside yeah. that he can rip out. Exactly. It's at this point in the conversation that Mary and I realized that we had kind of let time get away from us and that she had another appointment to get to. I promised to send her along some Florida book recommendations, which I still intend to do. She told me that she hasn't read a lot of Florida books, and I promised I'd send her along a, a few recommendations. I've certainly read a few in my time. You know, I am a very lucky person in that in the last several years of my life, I've gotten to meet two authors that have been hugely influential to me. Bill Bryson, who wrote A Walk in the Woods, and Mary Roach. And you know, they say don't meet your heroes, and I'm sure that that is certainly true in a lot of situations. There's certainly a lot I wouldn't want to meet, but in the two situations where I've gotten to speak with authors, writers who have had just monumental impacts on the person that I am and the writer that I am, I have to say that they more than lived up to expectations. So I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mary. Of course, it ended with her and I discussing hermit crabs. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you didn't listen to the first episode with Mary Roach, you can hear a little more context for a lot of the conversations that we had during that chat that you just listened to and a little bit more about the pests of Florida. All right, that's all I have for you. I hope you enjoyed your Friday listen. I hope that you had a wonderful holiday week and I hope that this weekend is good to you. I'll see you Monday. We're going to talk about seashells. I'm really looking forward to it. Follow the show on social media, WFM pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Come say, Hey, I'd love to hear from you. 
I will see you Monday. Until then, take care of yourself and drink more water. See you soon. <laughs>